I'm Jamie Duggett, one of the assistant pastors here at Wallace, and we're finishing up a topical series we've been doing. Uh, we asked you this summer to send in your questions, and then through August and up to now, where Labor Day, we've been answering them, and then we'll be starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount next week. And the question for today was, are there sins that are worse than others, or is sin just sin? Which, as I think we go through this sermon, you'll see is a really great introduction into the Sermon on the Mount, where we're headed next. Um, but let's start with uh, a reading of God's Word uh, from Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 to 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who's native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to examine the topic of sin and wrongdoing in our lives, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would open your word and help us to understand it, and that you would give us life through our study of it. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the twistiest road you've ever been on? I think probably one of the candidates was when uh, my wife and I were in Greece for our honeymoon, and we were on a bus going up a mountain, as you know, they make those roads kind of windy, and it, it felt like with every turn, the front of the bus was swinging out over the open air. I, I'm sure the driver had done it m many times before and knew what he was doing, but it was a little nerve-wracking to be inside. Here's another way to ask the question. Children, how many times can you spin around before you get so dizzy that you fall over? Have you ever played that game? The more you turn around, the harder it is to walk straight after you're done. Well, our sermon today is about something twisty, sin. What is sin? That, that's kind of a church word, right? That's not one maybe we use outside a church context. It's a Bible word. What is sin? Well, sin is the word the Bible uses for things that are morally wrong, whether that's actions or even thoughts and desires that are morally and ethically wrong. The original Hebrew word could actually be used in the realm of archery when you shoot an arrow but miss the target. So it has that basic metaphor of not hitting the mark, but when it comes to right and wrong. So with that answered, are there sins that are worse than others or is sin just sin? That's the question. You, go, you get it? Are there some sins that are worse than others, or is all sin just sin? And here's the answer. Yes and no. Well, that about does it. Uh, we can have the worship team. No. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll unpack that a bit. But let me give you a slightly longer answer. 
because it's hard to make a better answer to this question than the one that's already in our Westminster longer cat, longer cat, larger catechism. Um, I'll read this relatively quickly for the sake of time. Question 150, are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Answer, all transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reasons of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Sins receive their aggravations from the persons offending, if they be of riper age, greater experience, or grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, offices, office, guide to others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others. Two, from the parties offended, if immediately against God, his attributes and worship, against Christ and his grace, the Holy Spirit, his witness and workings, against superiors, men of eminency, and such as we stand especially related and engaged unto, against any of the saints, particularly weak brethren, and the souls of them, or any other, and the common good of all are many. Three, from the nature and quality of the offense, if it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins. If not only conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words and actions, scandalize others and admit of no reparation. If against means, mercies, judgments, lies of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonition, censures of the church, civil punishments, and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements to God or men. If done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance, Four, from circumstance of time and place, if on the Lord's day, or other times of divine worship, or immediately before or after these, or other helps to prevent or remedy such miscarriages, if in public or in the presence of others, who are thereby likely to be provoked or defiled. So this is going to be a long sermon. No. <laughs> We're not going to cover all of that. I will say, you can go on the PCA's website, and you can download the larger catechism with proof texts. And this is a very well-proof-texted section. So if something in here isn't something I cover in the sermon, one thing I'm not going to cover but that really caught my interest was it's worse if you're a leader and you sin. Boy, we could say a lot about that. And there's a ton of proof text for it. I'm not going to talk about it. If you want to know more, you can just download the Westminster Larger Catechism and take a look at some of the proof texts. Um, one thing, though, that comes through from reading that and from reading the Bible is that sin is very complicated, isn't it? It's very twisty. There's something contradictory and even impossible about it. After all, God created everything good. The Bible tells us that. Uh, so if everything comes and gets goodness from the source God who created it, how can there be any evil in the world? It must be by twisting what is good into something else, and by twisting our perception of the good so that we think that things are good which aren't really good. And for that reason, sin is always deceptive as well. It, it tricks us. Sometimes we use the word perverse to describe it, which, children, is just a fancy word for twisty. I think that's probably why the prophets and the apostles in the Bible use paradoxical language to describe sin so many times. Uh, and they often try to shake us out of our assumptions. Our first instincts about what is and isn't sin and what is and isn't worse don't always line up with the way God sees things. I've tried to pull out some of the main ideas, uh, and we're, we're going to hit three points in this sermon. Point number one, sin is worse, which is more intentional. 
Sin is worse if it is more intentional. Point number two, there are different kinds of sin which are bad for different kinds of reasons. And point number three, ultimately all sin is rebellion against God. So we're going to see that sin is worse if it's more intentional. We're going to see there's different kinds of sin we need to think about. And then we're going to see that all sin is ultimately rebellion against God. So point number one, sin is worse if it's more intentional. I know probably when people ask this question, they want me to go straight to actions. You know, which are the things I really shouldn't do, and what's the stuff that it's not such a big deal? But you know, that's actually not what the Bible highlights, first of all, when it's talking about the seriousness of sin. Uh, Instead, the Bible focuses on intentionality, which is how willing and knowing our sin is. Uh, Put another way, it's, it's how fully our minds and hearts are wrapped up in our sin. It's how willingly we throw ourselves into our sin. And I'm thinking of passages like the one I just read in Numbers 15. First of all, it tells us that there is such a thing as unintentional sin. The Hebrew behind this it means a stumbling, a trip up, a mistake. Uh, examples of this sin given in the law of Moses include a number of things. For instance, manslaughter, when you kill somebody by accident, it's not intentional or murder. Um, Or it could be failing to volunteer as a witness in a court case, even though you know something relevant. Or it could be touching something ceremonially ceremonially unclean, even though you don't know at the time that it's ceremonially unclean, because we have these unclean laws in the Old Testament. It actually could be swearing a careless oath. So I give an oath that I'm going to do something, and then maybe it turns out that I can't do it, or it's not a good idea. Um, And then at the community level, the community can become contaminated with sin that they don't even know about if one of the members does something without the community knowing about it at the time. And that counts as one of these cases, too. These are diverse cases, but they all involve the sorts of moral quandaries we get ourselves into when we aren't careful enough to avoid sin and sort of trip into it by accident, or when we lack knowledge of the moral significance of our actions. But when an individual or a community does become aware of their sin, when it's brought to their attention, it's their responsibility to deal with it. And the Old Testament law provides a sacrificial way to deal with that kind of sin. But there's also another kind of sin that this passage talks about. Verse 30 mentions sin of the high hand, which elsewhere is called insolent or presumptuous sin. And this is sin done with full intention of sinning. And perhaps also with a brazen shamelessness that doesn't care if anybody knows. This is practicing your sin in the sight of everybody and not really caring. Our passage says that the person who does this sort of sin has reviled God. It's as if they've taunted God or or cursed him out. And actually, the sacrificial system has no way to deal with this kind of sin. The law says that the person who does it must be cut off from the community. By the way, this is why David throws himself on God's mercy in Psalm 51. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it, says David. He's fully aware that what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah doesn't have a place for forgiveness 
under the Mosaic sacrificial system. And so he has to throw himself on purely God's mercy, beyond or outside of the covenant of Moses. Uh, by the way, this is one of the things that changes with Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is able to atone for the sins which weren't covered under the Mosaic law. Still, it helps us understand a difference between two kinds of sin. Uh, so the more intentional our sin is, the more serious it is. Um, there are some other categories Scripture brings up along the same line, which I'll only mention for the sake of time. Sin is worse if you know better. If you think something is a sin, even if it isn't a sin, but you do it thinking it's a sin, then it's a sin because you thought it was. Uh, sin in our desires becomes more serious as it works its way out into actions, and if we keep doing the actions, it ends up producing death throughout our lives. You can get, go look at the confession in the proof text if you want to see where those verses come from. I do want to spend a little time talking about this process of spiritual death that results from sin. Scripture talks a lot about our hearts becoming hardened and our consciences becoming seared. And that seems to be where this sort of defiant sin comes from. Jeremiah 5.3 talks about those who become so hardened that they don't even repent when God disciplines them multiple times. O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Jesus tells the story of a man who's forgiven this impossibly large debt. Do you know this story? He could never repay it, but he's given mercy, and the debt is pardoned. And what does he do? There's this other guy who owes him a much smaller debt, and he turns around and starts choking him to get what's his. And there's so, something so dreadful about someone who is unchanged by his experience of mercy. And even though he's received mercy, won't show it to others. And I think related to this kind of hardness as well is the sin the New Testament calls in, in various places, the sin unto death, or sometimes blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What this seems to mean is having the full opportunity to hear and understand the gospel, the testimony about who Jesus is, and rejecting it. And at its most extreme, it's what we call apostasy, where someone becomes part of the church and experiences that fellowship and the preaching of the gospel, but then walks away forever. The apostles give us really severe warnings about this. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. These warnings are so serious that they sometimes raise the question whether believers, true believers, can lose their salvation. The answer based on other passages is no. Paul says if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued 
with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John's saying here that we can infer that those who walk away from the faith permanently must not have ever had the inward reality of faith. What's more, some do fall and get back up, right? It's not like everybody who walks away is gone forever. Peter denies Jesus, but then he's lifted back up and he repents of it. But Peter's is not the only story in the New Testament. There's also Judas, who betrayed his Lord and then killed himself. Judas's sin was a sin unto death. I think the reason that these passages have such strong language and strong warning is they take membership in God's covenant community very seriously. It's a serious thing to sit under the preaching of the gospel, to hear about this mercy that there is in Jesus, to even fellowship in the table of Christ's body and blood and then walk away. It's not that nobody who does that is ever restored, but many who do so will be hardened against God's mercy and grace, permanently seared against the gospel. These warnings should be sobering for us. And for those of us with faith, they are sobering. The Holy Spirit uses these warnings to remind us to cling close to Christ and not drift away. I know that for me, there, there's nothing more sobering and terrifying than some of these Bible stories about people who are hardened in their sin and refuse to repent. There's a story of Cain, where God seeks him out and asks him if he should be angry, but he doesn't even respond. Just lets that anger stew in his heart until it becomes a murderous rage, and he kills his own brother. Or how about Jonah? Hell-bent on God's vengeance, falling on the Ninevites, complaining about God's mercy on people he wanted to see burn. I wonder, did Jonah ever repent? The book doesn't tell us. It just has him sitting out there, refusing to listen to God again and again. But I, for myself, I pray that there's no such obstinance in my own heart. I pray the Holy Spirit would convict me of sin and show me the places I need to change and be susceptible to repentance. I think our main application here is that we need to take sin very seriously. Yes, more intentional sin is more serious than less intentional sin, but also there's a road that we can walk down, and we don't want to walk down it. Don't harden your hearts. You're here. You're hearing the gospel and God's word preached this morning. Respond. Repent. Don't be like those who harden their hearts and wouldn't listen to what God was saying. So that's the first point. The biggest factor for what makes sin serious is intentionality. It's what's going on with our hearts, that they become ingrained and bound up with sin. But it's not as if the Bible has nothing to say about what makes sinful actions themselves bad. So point number two, there are different kinds of sin, and they're serious for different reasons. I'm not going to address every distinction we could make. Again, we go on way too long. But I want to hit some big categories. Let's focus on four broad categories of sin. Number one, injustice. Two, excessive pursuit of physical appetites. 
Three, idolatry, and four, self-righteousness. So, injustice, pursuit of physical appetites, idolatry, self-righteousness. Um, these categories, by the way, are not completely separate. They, they do feed into each other. First, we have injustice. The paradigm case of injustice is murder, um, but it also includes things like theft, economic exploitation, ignoring the plight of the poor, or lending to the poor at exorbitant interest. Um, why is injustice particularly bad? We could sum that up by saying that it harms other people. It's fundamentally a failure to love our neighbor as ourself. Next, we can turn to excessive pursuit of physical appetites. The paradigm sin here is adultery, but it would include addictions to substances like alcohol or drugs. What's special about these sins? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What makes sexual sin wrong in a special way because it can involve a lot of things. What makes it special is that the person who engages in sexual sin degrades their own body and fails to treat their own body with honor and respect. I think this is an insight that's sometimes missing in our culture today. We focus very much on don't harm other people. But what you do to yourself, well, that's up to you. But, but the Bible takes this sort of degrading of ourselves very seriously. And that's something that doesn't just happen with sex, it happens with other sins of the appetite. When we keep feeding our desire for pleasure with more and more and more, we trash and pollute our own characters. Our very tastes and desires become degraded. So, moving now to idolatry. This was more countercultural when God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. If you read ancient literature, you'll know that most people agree you shouldn't kick orphans and widows in the teeth. Don't do it. Adultery, bad life choice will cause problems. But they didn't think there was anything wrong with making images of all sorts of various gods in the forms of everything under creation and bowing down to it. Far from it. They thought that made you really pious and holy. But here come God's prophets with the message that God considers these practices abhorrent and disgusting. But why is it so bad? Because only God is worthy of worship, and we were made to worship God and find our good in Him. Anything that turns us away from this worship of God to a different direction distorts our relationship with all of creation. So, the Old Testament prophets were trying to expand the people's definition of what a sin was. They needed to include idolatry in it, and they weren't. The other area that's like this is self-righteousness. These sins are very counterintuitive because they look like righteousness, right? Self-righteousness looks like righteousness. Self-righteous acts are done ostensibly to serve God. They're not even clearly idolatry. They look like worship of the true God. And they often seem like good things to do, at least in isolation. But they lose the main plot of what God desires. Self-righteousness, you see, is more about proving ourselves good than it is about actually doing what God desires. It's about boasting in our works and being seen to be righteous. 
God called, uh, Jesus called out this kind of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. More about that this fall. The Apostle Paul, for his part, often called out a sinful kind of zeal, a passion in following God that doesn't actually follow his command to love others very much. So here again, the biblical authors want to expand our understanding of what serious sin is. Sin can even look like being sold out for God, zealous and passionate in his cause, if that zeal is more about proving my righteousness than it is about loving God and loving my neighbor. In the Old Testament, the prophets often connected idolatry to adultery because they wanted people to take idolatry as seriously as they took adultery. In the New Testament, Paul makes these lists of sins where he puts like idolatry, drunkenness, orgies, ooh, gross, zeal, (laughs) enmity, divisiveness, He just puts these sins right next to these other sins that his listeners already took very seriously. He wants us to see how bad this sin really is. So let's sum up this list of types of sin. We can judge how serious a sin is by, one, how much it wrongs other people, two, how much it degrades ourselves, three, how much it turns our hearts away from worshiping God, And four, how much it inflates our boasting in ourselves instead of God. If we only use one of those metrics, we're going to end up with a sort of one-sided version of Christianity. I think we could find examples for each one of these of only taking one of these to be sin and ignoring the others. But the Bible calls us to a holistic approach, a complete breakfast for righteousness, if you will. This might be a lot to think about and absorb, I know that, but I think the basic takeaway for that point, this point, is we need wisdom in combating sin. It's twisty, it's complicated, it's many-headed. Moses tells the Israelites that the law that God is giving them is their wisdom before the nations. It's not just a set of rules, although there are rules, but we're not just supposed to follow the rules mechanically, we're supposed to learn from the rules what God's wisdom is for life. And so we're called to depend on God's Spirit as we read God's Word as a church together to, see, to discern what is sin? How might it be grasping a hold upon me in ways I don't see so that we can deal with it together? So that's the second point. There's different kinds of sin, and they're serious for different reasons. But point number three, all sin is rebellion against God. You know, the Westminster Larger Catechism moves on from the question I read earlier to a much shorter one. Question 152, what doth every sin deserve at the hands of God? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ." We've said some things about degrees and diversity of sin, and we could say a lot more. But we also need to add that fundamentally all sin is the same. And what is it that makes sin fundamentally all the same? It's all rebellion against God. The Apostle James says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. There's unity to the whole law, James says. You can keep every single commandment except for one, and you're guilty of breaking the whole law. What gives it this unity? It's because all the commandments are given by one God. Whichever commandment we break, it's still transgressing the law of one God. And of course, James is just echoing here some of the teaching of his big brother Jesus, isn't he? In our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll hear Jesus say, if you hate someone, it's as if you murdered them. If you're lust, it's as if you committed adultery. Is Jesus just ignoring everything else the Bible has to say about degrees of sin? I don't think so. But he's directing us back to the fact that at its root, all sin comes from this heart that desires things that God doesn't desire. After all, even the Old Testament passages that distinguish mistaken sins from presumptuous sins, they still label it all as sin. Even our less serious sin needs to be taken seriously. It defiles us and it has to be dealt with. In the Old Testament, it needed a sacrifice to cleanse it. There's no such thing as making excuses and avoiding responsibility on the grounds that our sin is just not that big a problem, and look, his sin over there is worse and a bigger deal. It's a big deal to rebel against God. The Apostle John emphasizes this point in 1 John chapter 3. It sometimes gets different translations, but let me walk you through mine, starting in chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who does sin does lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does it mean to say that sin is lawlessness? It means that it is breaking a law that has been set down for us by God. Not everybody thinks about wrongdoing this way. Some people just think of it as harming others. Perhaps others think of it just as not living your most effective life. But John says it is lawlessness, breaking God's law. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. When I do something I shouldn't or I don't do something the law says I should, that's when I've sinned. John continues, And you know that this one, that's Jesus, was revealed in order that he might remove sin, and sin does not exist in him. Okay, so here's the answer to sin. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfectly righteous one. Sin cannot exist in Jesus. Jesus is like water and sin is like fire. He extinguishes it. John goes on, everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Okay, John might lose us a little here. Uh, after all, is John saying that if you believe in Jesus, then you're just immediately sinlessly perfect? Well, we know he says earlier on that actually we need to confess sin, and we say we don't have sin, then we're calling God a liar. So he can't mean that. But John is expressing, I think, in a radical way the truth about how Jesus changes us. There is a fundamental connection, or sorry, a fundamental contradiction between being in Jesus and sinning. They don't go together. Another way to put this is that anyone who sins fundamentally has a Jesus problem. There's something they're not seeing or knowing about Jesus. John goes on, Little children, don't let anyone deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, 
just as that one, Jesus, is righteous. Okay, so Jesus' righteousness becomes manifest in us when we do righteous things. Again, here, actually, John is, is less concerned about whether we're seen to be righteous than about whether we're doing righteous things. And if we are doing righteous things, it's because Jesus is righteous, and we're in Jesus, and that's expressing itself. Moving on. The one who does sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. That is why the Son of God is revealed so that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. And that means there's two sides. There's Jesus' side, and there's the devil's side. It's a radical break. We need to choose between which one we are on. Are we go Every time we sin, we face this temptation. Are we going to be acting out the reality of who Jesus is, or are we going to be Satan's lackey? Finally, everyone who has been begotten from God does not sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been begotten from God. Again, John uses radical language here. If you've been begotten of God, if you become a child of God in Jesus, you don't sin. Actually, you can't sin because you aren't from the devil. You're from God. That's what John says. I'm I, it's a pity I missed the Sunday school on this week. I don't know, I don't know what you guys said, but it, it's a very radical statement, isn't it? Well, actually, John does give us a hint that it might be a little bit more complicated. He says God's seed remains in us, and we know that a seed grows into a tree over time. So it might be this process is a little bit more complicated. But you see, that's not John's focus here. His focus is on these absolutely exclusive realities. Jesus is the Son of God, begotten by the Father before all eternity. It would be blasphemy to even say that it was possible for the Son of God to sin. It's impossible. But now we are in Jesus. And in a different but analogous way, we've been begotten by God too. Not not in the same way, but in an analogous way. And that means that the sin-destroying power of who Jesus is is now unleashed, unleashed in our lives. And this is why the split is so radical. We are in the middle of a war between Jesus and Satan, and Jesus is going to win. And that means that Satan and all his works and all sin will be rooted out. Jesus came to take away sin. And that means that there's a basic contradiction between sin and us and us in Jesus. And by the way, the us in Jesus will win out. Friends, this is a word of gospel hope in the midst of our struggle with sin. It calls us to come in humility, recognizing that we have all sinned and all fall short of God's righteous standards. Some of us, some of us here today maybe feel like really big sinners. I don't know if that's, if that's you, if you feel like you're just the worst sinner than everybody else in the room. Maybe some of us here feel pretty good about ourselves, actually, maybe even to the point of self-righteousness. Some of us might have had a good week. We might have been, uh, we might have seen sin retreat in our lives, and we've seen the Holy Spirit do great things, and that's wonderful. Some of us might have had a bad week. We might have seen sin encroach upon us and feel like we're stuck and feel like sin is winning. But ultimately, 
There is none of us who does not need to confess sin and stand before God and receive his forgiveness. The good news is that in Jesus we are forgiven on the basis of his righteousness, not our own. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the force of Jesus' righteousness is unleashed in us as the Spirit works by grace through faith, helping us to know and see Jesus more clearly. And so that we actually start resembling him in the righteous deeds that we do. Now, this can be a complicated process full of twists and turns, and I think you get that idea if you read John's whole letter. John, I don't think, means to deny that complexity, but he wants us to see that ultimately it is a binary. It is Jesus or the devil. And if by faith you are in Jesus, then your sin is done for. It might take a while to see that all play out, but it will. And friends, this is good news for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have dealt with sin definitively in Jesus. Lord, we know that all of our sin, all of it is rebellion against you. But we also know that all of our sin, from the greatest to the least, is taken away in Jesus. And the whole point of Jesus' coming was to take it away. We still wait to see the day when that's fully fulfilled. But we believe by faith that you will do it in Christ. And so we cast ourselves upon him. And we pray that you would continue your work in Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen.